Koningstein Road in the east to Casitas Gap in the west, and the orange curtain is descending across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hello, everyone. This is Brett Bradigan, editor of Ojai's Magazines, the monthly and quarterly. As you know, Ojai, with its astonishing natural beauty, close-knit community, and plenty of venues, is home to many world-class festivals. One of the great joys of coming out of a global pandemic is being able to get out in public and join together to support our vibrant art scene. First, it was the Ojai Music Festival, then the Storytelling Festival, and now, November 3rd through the 14th, the Ojai Film Festival. We're joined by Steve Grimet, the artistic director and co-founder, along with board president John Lambert and fellow board member Sven Shelgren. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, we're here with a couple of the luminaries from the Ojai, or three luminaries from the Ojai Film Festival. We have Sven Shelgren, Steve Grumet, and John Lambert. Hey guys. Hi. Hello. How's it going? Yeah. It's coming up soon. It's it uh, Another yeah, week. The Ohio Film week. Festival, November 4th through the 14th. I'm right. putting dates out there, but some of those dates are the basic yeah. uh, streaming availability. Mm-hmm. But the in-person events are November 4th through the 9th. Start, yeah, it starts on the evening of the 4th when we're providing the community with the free film. This year we're showing up that wonderful animated film. Pixar movie with Ed Asner, festival festival favorite. It's the Ed Asner voice of the grumpy old man that attracted us because uh, you folks will remember that in 2017, he was here at the festival and accepted a Lifetime Achievement Award from us. Yeah, and it was my honor to be on stage with him oh. to do a panel. That's right. Yeah, he was he was great. He was making fun of my shoes. <laughs> well, like many of our lifetime achievement awardees, they come here to get an award and then they promptly die. Well, we don't which like means to say that. Hey, we don't like exactly to say that. Well, that's not going to be good sales for your for next for the big uh, ass. Well, you know, I've, I'm a little. In fact, we've changed the award now. It's called the Distinguished Artist yeah. Award, so they cannot die. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. Those uh, superstitions matter. Yeah, and this year, of course, Chloe Zhao will be with us, and she is. She's young. She's yeah, young. She's, she's not she's, even out of her 30s. She's uh, a hell of a performer in terms of writing and directing and we're very happy to be able to have her and accept that award yeah this is your um or she's going to be screening writer correct her which is all non-actors i've seen that movie i thought it was brilliant like the brady jandro the actual writer and then his friend who got uh Spinal cord injury from riding. This is all somewhere near the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. I think it takes place. Yeah, I believe so. And the way she found out about these people, she had worked on another movie where she met them and heard their story. Songs of my brother. You know, brother. Uh, Yeah, songs that I learned from my brother. And so she figured these are these people have an interesting life story. So I should maybe focus on them for my next movie. And so she did, and it's a great, interesting, deep, introspective, meditative quality to that movie. But this is, I I grew up 
you know, in Western New York, but it's a very cow country, and the rodeo was like the big thing in the summers. And then when I lived in Kernville, they had two rodeos a year. And really, just that whole circuit, those people go out there all summer long and bust their bodies up, and they're lucky if they make like ten or $12,000. Yeah. No, it's a, a, a most amazing part of our country and our culture. Uh, been around for quite a long time. So uh, after Up, we begin the actual live festival over at the Art Center here in Ojai. And yeah. up from the morning of the 5th, which is a Friday morning, straight through until the evening of the 8th, which is the Monday, where we're showing 78 films and probably about five different programs to go along with them. And on the 9th is when we move it entirely into the, the virtual Beyond Demand that you were referring to. That everybody will be able to screen any of the movies. Mm -hmm. That's correct. We are screening two other movies in that week. That are not part of the 78. That are not part of the 78. One is a sort of a nostalgic flick on Thursday evening, the 11th, called Larry Flint for President. Oh, really? Is it a documentary? It's a documentary using actual film that a woman who had worked with him had turned up and has created this document. So anyone anyone who goes back to the late 60s through the 70s will remember the uh, the porn master, as they call Yeah, him. well, I remember his great series of print ads, one of which I think ran in the New York Times, where he goes, is this obscenity? And it was like a beautiful woman. And then it was like carnage from the Vietnam War, uh-huh. you know, which is obscene. He was a great moral... Jester, I feel like he's quite a character. Yeah, so that's our Thursday. And then the next Saturday on the 13th is when Chloe Zhao will be with us screening the writer and doing question and answer with the audience. Yeah, well, it's it's quite a big get because the Eternals, I think they released it overseas already. And now it's coming. The big Marvel movie that she directed is coming out like the ninth or some or the fourth or fifth. Like yeah, it's, it's because it's being released on the same weekend as our festival Yeah, that we couldn't get her to come on the, into the actual festival. <laughs> yeah, well, good, good on you. That'll be a good yeah. big draw. We're very excited. Yeah, so what else are you excited about? I mean, um, what what is there any buzz about any of the films? Any juicy gossip well, I think, anything? Oh, there's some gossip. Oh, yeah, get that's into why we're here. Time. Well, first of all, we're excited, I think, mainly because we're doing a live festival again, even though it's only partially live. And we're simplifying things, as John has suggested and arranged for. That is, we have two venues, but they're in the same physical location, using two different yeah. rooms at the Art Wait Center. Wait a minute. Well, the Art Center and then the Art the Center theater, Gallery the and the Art Gallery okay. and the Theater. And yeah. the Raymond Room, pretty much every part of the art center. And the and courtyard. Get, uh, and the courtyard. It's like 110 seats or something in the main Yeah, it's about 120 in the theater and maybe 50 in the Raymond Room. Oh, and the gallery, at, at least approximately the same number, 100 to 120. Yeah. So you don't have to hustle back and forth to Chaparral. Right. Yeah. You're not screening anything in Chaparral? No. Nope. Huh. I, I like that venue, but it is kind of... Open and the sound is never really it, good there. It's, it's very big. cumbersome to set it up. Our yeah. tech masters have figured out a way to improve the acoustics, but it's a whole day of preparation, hanging absorptive foam all over the place, yeah. hanging a big curtain to divide the room in half, setting up the giant screen. 
So yeah. it's just but scheduling seventy eight movies in one venue basically it's got to be a lot of scurrying around and well this year we're showing each film only once we did that the first year and then we decided it would be preferable to make time to show each film twice yeah. but there's no way to do that with just one weekend I think that's going to be fine like, uh, well especially because they'll be able to see them streaming one, afterwards one place yeah, yeah. and and in all whatever in they serial, miss, they're not going concurrent yeah yeah I mean theoretically they could see only half the films even if they spent all day every day at the festival yeah. but now they'll be able to see the ones they missed online and what are some of the movies that people should be excited about any uh, full-length features oh yeah actually we have probably more full-length features this year than we've had in a while typically we'll have as few as four and typically maybe six to eight occasionally ten we have 11 features a couple of them from iraq and iran from and, iran really yeah so oh, lots, they, like, smuggled lots. out no Apparently, no, you don't need to, there's no physical media. Nothing needs to be smuggled if you have an internet oh, yeah. connection. Mm -hmm. And apparently True. they don't censor the internet the way the Chinese do. So you can just send your file anywhere in the world. The one problem is that they claim, and I believe it's true, that they have no way to pay us for the submission fee because they're not connected to the international banking system because oh, of the so same. They, so, they so they give us a sob story. And if, you know, usually I almost always I say, you know, what am I going to say? Oh, get, get some barrels of oil on them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could try that. Or so we just there like uh, airlifts of cash going into Iran. Well, there was <laughs> so when we first claim, uh, lifted yeah. the sanctions. Yeah, no, there was a, several a billion dollars or so that we owed them that we had impounded. That was their money that got. It was their money that we impounded in '79. Yeah, exactly. So we, we yeah, did what try to sneak a few films in, but we couldn't do that. Tried to sneak a few films into Iran. Yeah, some like of the other films goal. to go in with the money package, but. We, yeah. Just kidding. But. I know. It's like <laughs> cultural subversion. Yep. <laughs> I'd be surprised. There's a, it's very different from other countries in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, which is a rather backward country. It's very, they're very sophisticated people. And, and they're very pro-Western. Yes, people. the people are. And they have a very vibrant film industry. And their film schools are superb. Judging yeah. from the films that they turn out. I'm trying to remember that uh, Abbas Kiristami. Yeah, that's his name. Is he still alive? No, no he's he not. Has. He's a national recently, treasure. Right? Uh, not that recently. Uh, the last few years, we could look it up. But he's yeah. a national treasure. There, he's yeah, known he's, all over the world. He's there, Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That level. And there's Cecil B. DeMille all wrapped up into one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, how many countries were represented this year in the... Submissions it's typically there. about 40. I think it might have been a little bit less because of COVID, but it's like in the 30s. It's usually in the in the 30s to 40s, the number of films, the number of countries that yeah. submit films to us that we accept. And how many of the filmmakers are actually coming with the films? That's a question that I wouldn't be able to answer. Perhaps John knows. I think it's typically about half of the filmmakers. It runs between 20 and 25. Yeah. The COVID situation. Yeah has affected that to a very real degree. And uh, most of them that are from the United States and this region, we will see here. Yeah, but the ones from Iran might be a little different. Story. Well, we have had, actually, we've had guests come from overseas, including the Middle East in the past, but now with COVID, 
they wouldn't yeah. even be allowed into the country. So now, where does the Ohio? Well, uh, the main question I wanted to get to when you bring up COVID is how are people making movies during yeah, this time? There's got to be some interesting, clever, innovative stories. Well, we have a guy right here who <laughs> yeah. works on film sets. And there, there's a lot of different uh, protocols that that operate in different parts of the world. And uh, I know the U.S. industry, the union industries, are very regulated. They they do a lot of testing, sometimes daily, sometimes three times a week. Yeah. Um, lately, they're requiring vaccinations in order to work on set. And they have a zone system where you have a, a wristband that determines whether you get to be near camera or in the building or you can't go in the building. So some of the, the production people have to stay outside. Some of the support crew get to go in but stay away from the actors who are working without masks on. And then other people are very close to it. I think independent filmmakers do versions of this. That are common sense budgets and capacity, right. mm-hmm. but but they're still they still have to be aware of it, and they have to be sensitive to actors who who in most cases, unless it's a film about COVID, um, have to work without masks on in front of other crew that yeah have varying degrees of uh, protection. So, well, are there any films about COVID? You know, I don't think there are actually, which is rather surprising. Where it's even uh, background character. Well, I've seen all of them, so I should know the answer to that. But it's been several months, and I just, I know people have told me that this is their COVID film, meaning they made it during COVID. Yeah. And there were certain restrictions that they had to uh, accept on what they could do yeah. because of that. But I don't know that any of them have COVID as a theme. I mean, well, just, I just, just as, as an aside, you do see advertising where the people are wearing masks on camera so that you'll know, you'll always know seeing that down the road that that was made during this period. Yeah, but it's going to be an interesting signifier for this period. I just wonder about the creative process during pandemic. I get different stories from everyone I ask. Some people have found it to be the isolation to be liberating. Other people have found it to be so isolating that your brain just starts to shut down without the social contact and clues. Well, they have freedom in, in, the, in the sense that there are many other things that they would normally be doing with their time that they can't do. Yeah. So they have to be at home or with their friends who've been vaccinated and whom they feel comfortable with. So it's maybe in a way it gets their creative juices flowing because there are fewer distractions. I wonder, I know I've told this story before about uh, the lives of uh, the great artist, uh, Giorgio Vasari, and one of his contemporaries got a big commission to do a chapel, which is going to be his Sistine Chapel. I can't remember the guy's name, but 11 years he kept people away from this project because he was paranoid people were going to steal his ideas. And after he, he died, before he finished, and... Giorgio Vasari himself, he knew the guy. He thought he was a little weird, but they were friends. And he got in there, and, and it was a complete mess. It was like the draftsmanship was so precise and beautiful, but the perspective and the way the characters interacted with each other was a total mess. It was like the isolation was the worst possible thing. Because he had no feedback from anyone. That's right. Tell him uh, constant was going feedback in the loops and everything yeah. else. Because yeah. of his paranoia, he just shut that off and it really just killed his spark. Well, this is why we say, there's a saying in the 
film business, never make a movie with your own money. And the reason for that is that when you're using other people's money, they're going to want to know what you're doing to make sure their investment you got, is... You got a little bit of oversight. Exactly. And sometimes they don't know anything about films, but at least they'll make sure you're not doing anything totally crazy. Or stupid, but if you use your own, money, their own money, you're free from. to do whatever you want. And very often, yeah. and very rarely is the result any good. I wonder, though, are there any examples of people that just, like, did the process from start to finish with their... Um, yeah, oh, yeah, things? there's a lot. Sure, some of the mumblecore films of the early 20s. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw those, the Duplass brothers making a movie the, here. They the were time. the ones I was yeah. thinking of. They've gone very far from where they started. Oh, yeah, well, they're, they're doing all kinds. They, yeah. they have a factory now. Yeah. They do a lot of... <laughs> You know, they're executive producing dozens of projects at any given time. Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent example. Yeah. Just, you know, they maxed out their parents' credit cards to get mm -hmm. their first few films yeah. made. The Puffy Chair. Did you ever see oh, that? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's great stuff. Yeah. Well, oh, my yeah, Sister's I... Keeper was the last movie I think mm. I saw that was just strictly their project. My si No, My Sister's Keeper. I think that's the name of it. About I'm not the, sure. Yeah, it was really like a really strange love triangle about some, and it was just shot in some cabin up in the northwest, yeah. all one set. Really fun movie. Well, one of the brothers actually they were here one year because we showed a movie that they had made. Oh, really? They, it was. Mark it was or, a, um, Jay? I don't remember. I, you know, I don't remember which one it was. I I don't even think I met them. But the movie was about an L.A. You might even remember this because you have a voluminous memory. But Not really. um, there was a musician in L.A. in the 1980s, who was very, very popular in the, uh, on the L.A. music scene, and he was mugged. And the result of the mugging was that he just gave up music. I mean, he recovered from the mugging, just left. And they were trying to find the Duplass brothers, or at least one of them, was very curious about what happened to him. And they found him, and they persuaded him to come back and start making music again. And they actually brought him with them when they came up to the festival. Oh, is that the film they screened here about this? Yeah. Was it a documentary? It was a documentary, yeah. Oh, their documentaries are amazing. Yeah. You know, Wild Wild West about, uh, you know, the Bhagwan Rajesh and all of his oh, yeah. people. <laughs> There's some yeah. uh, some Ojai connections there that I won't get into, but hmm. I'm glad that didn't happen here. <laughs> well, you never know what might happen here. For or what's what happening happens. right now. For instance, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't know there was such a vibrant anti-vaccination community here. We yeah, well, fortunately, a few of them moved on. They found us not hospitable. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no big loss. They but, moved yeah. on to another geographical area or to another kind of nonsensical Ex Existential belief. plane. <laughs> no, I, they, they moved. Oh. Yeah. I thought maybe they died of COVID and Oh, well, that would be... Found nirvana. That would be some kind of justice, I guess. Although I don't wish that on anyone. No, I certainly yeah. don't either. You know, I think if you scratch down through the surface of many of the films that are submitted to our festival, you'll find they were made on parents' credit cards. Really? <laughs> well, we are an independent... Absolutely. Film. That's like This and is their uh, first step on the, on the ladder. It's That's great. Right. Yeah. That's right. Well, there's a very wide range, though. There are some that do appear to have been made on a very low to non-existent Yeah, well, budget. you're the guy. I mean... I am? <laughs> well, you're the one who screens all the movies. Oh, eventually, I, yeah. We, we have well, a... Well, now, you have a... Uh, we we yeah, have a team of screen... about that? Talk okay. about the process. Right. Well, the way it works is that we use a company called Film Freeway. We used to use another one in this 
in the same business call without a box and they, they I remember public that. relations was rather poor. But Film Freeway is a Canadian company. It's a clearinghouse that acts as a, an, an agent between filmmakers and film festivals. So a filmmaker will submit his film to one of the festivals listed on their site and he can just fill out a form only once and then decide where he wants to send it sends them the fee and all the logistics are handled by film freeway so what happens is we get we open our submission window at usually around march 1st and as the films flow in and they all come uh they come in a big big gush first i would imagine well the big gush comes at the end of each month because we have They're, they're <laughs> passing notes at the back of class yeah, I didn't quite, I didn't. Well, I'm suggesting that the use of the he pronoun oh, specifically is oh, not yeah. necessarily... Well, if we want to get into wolfness here, we can do that, but I don't <laughs> think that would be a good idea. Well, anyway, I don't want to get near that. Yeah, I wouldn't get anywhere near that. But, I've, I've been dealing okay, with Okay, he or she, but I mean, what can I say? You can, <laughs> when I was in English class, now this is a, a little bit of an aside, we were told you should say he instead of he or she, but I realize it's a different world, so I will say he or she. Anyway, so the filmmakers send in their films, and we have a submissions manager who goes on to the site to see what new films have come. Oh, you asked me about if there's a rush. The rush comes at the end of each month because the rate to submit goes up by $5. Oh, yeah, sure. There's yeah. time. So you uh, can see penalties. Like, yeah, yeah, it's like a sawtooth. So the submissions manager, usually a she, I think it's always been a she, yeah. to think of it, uh, will assign the films to the screeners. We have anywhere from 15 to 25 screeners. That take categories? No. They oh, will take, take a batch yep. of whatever comes well, whatever. in. Yeah, now, the, if the film submissions manager knows them, then he or she, she or he, might send the films that she thinks they would really like to watch and would be better equipped to evaluate. So the first level of screening is the submissions manager. Well, she doesn't do anything, or he doesn't do anything in the way of editing or choosing what. Yeah. She just says, here's a bunch of films. Here are my screeners. Let me just give five to this person. And it's usually about two hours, four hours per week of films that go to each screener. Assuming there are enough... A manageable amount of Yeah, that's watching. what we figure. Because people like to watch movies at night anyway yeah. on Netflix or Amazon. And then they write reviews. Some of them are really amazing in the quality of their reviews. Yeah. Some not so much. And then at the end of this process, I look at all of them. This year it was about 315. And what's your official title, Steve? I know you're one of the founders or maybe... Artistic director. Artistic director, okay. So then I lie on my waterbed for three weeks during the month of August. And I start watching the films in order of the screener's ratings. And I do that because... I want to make sure there are at least some good ones in there. So if I look at the best ones first, so I won't get really nervous. Out. Yeah, well, if I just started looking at them at random and there were a bunch of bad ones, I figure, oh my God, we're totally screwed. But I look at the best ones first. And by the time I've seen 20% of them, I have most of the ones I think we're going to show that here. But I keep looking and I look at all of them until they get down to the very end. I might watch them all if, they're, if it's manageable. But I typically wouldn't look at the ones that out of a score of one to 10 from all three screeners, get an average score of yeah. two or three. I figure the probability that a film that was given a two or a three by three separate screeners, the probability that that's gonna be a good film is so low, I'll just assume it's not. 
And then that's the program. Then I look for, then I don't even consider how much running time we have available at that point. I look at the films only on the basis of do I think this film should be included? After I've made my choices, and I, it's very simple, it's either yes, no, or maybe. It's usually 20%, 15 to 20% yes, uh, five, two to five percent maybe, and all the rest no. And then I add up the running time running time of the ones that I've selected and almost always it just barely fits the amount of time we have available. Sometimes I do have to drop a few. And that's the process. Mm. And then it goes and over what to... what is the amount of screening time that is during the festival? What is it total? 40 hours, 40, 50, 40, 60 50 hours, hours, something like that. So Depends if you're making them. a feature film selection, you really got to keep an eye on that. The clock. You mean... The shorts, you can fit in a bunch of shorts in a any period of time but uh well i go by the total running time of all the films and i and i but what i'm saying is if you you typically have three or four features or five or six features that's a big difference to go up to 11 you said full yeah. length features you have this year yeah but over but interestingly enough you might think that that would push the total running time up by quite a bit but for some reason we had fewer shorts so it kind of balanced out, and there was just... Well, why is that? That's interesting. Why more why. features and less short films? It seems like people would yeah. bite off more of the short films. Well, when I say fewer, it's in absolute numbers, there's always more shorts. What I'm saying is the ratio of yeah. the number of features to the number of shorts in, has uh, increased, so that where there might be uh, 50... Well, this year I think there was something like 57... Features submitted, and all the rest were well, 57 narrative features and maybe 30 documentary features, and all the rest were shorts and animation. So there's always a lot more shorts. Yeah. But among the ones I selected, the ratio was different this year. I selected more features and fewer shorts. And I didn't do that by design. I, I think only about, do I think this is a film that should be shown? That's only worthy. Exactly. Are any or many or... Even a small percentage of these films, other on the on the circuit itself of other festivals, do they? Most of them are. Yeah. When they complete a film, the first thing they do to, to get as much attention as they can is just submit is to, to go to without scattershot. To, uh, yeah. They, well, not quite scattershot because they're like seven thousand festivals in the world. So they pick the ones that they think might be the best fit for their film, or the ones that have the best reputation. We have a pretty good reputation that we've acquired over the last 22 years. 22 years. Yeah. So what what is going on? Is there any buzz on any particular films? Anything really fun? Or I think we have one film I was privileged to, to see, uh, which is the story of some Syrian refugees being located or relocated to a small community in, I believe it's Western Canada. Right. And you mean like British Columbia or one of the prairie provinces? The prairie like provinces. Alberta. I think it's a little further east. It, but it's, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a well, I consider it to be a very well done film yeah. uh, and very germane to kind of what's happening in our world today. Yeah. Which coincidentally happens to be the first film I watched because the screeners gave it a very high rating and I liked it. And so I knew right away that was going to be in. What's the name of this film? It's called Jasmine Road. Oh, nice. And how many of these Syrian refugees are, are in this it's cohort? A, well, the film is about one family. It's about a family of, of three. A mother, 
her son and her daughter and focuses around the whole process of being there, assimilation, yeah. xenophobias, you know, yeah, all, sure all of the things we see. Of, a lot of that. Yeah. Like, very, I did very see it. I saw another film which I have yet to stop thinking about called Mommy and Daddy. Oh, very interesting. It comes from Japan. And it focuses on one of the cultural aspects in Japan that are never surfaced anywhere, mm -hmm. which are the rights of children, especially children of divorce. And I found it absolutely fascinating. Hmm. Absolutely well, it, fascinating. It's based on an anomaly in their law, which is that if there's a custody battle between the two members of a divorcing couple, they cut the child in half. Well, it, no, it's kind of the opposite of that. Yeah. It's the opposite of that. Instead of saying, well, the child will go with the mother, but the father will have visitation rights, and here's well, once a week, and then every summer this child can stay for a month. With it. Instead of any of that, they say, okay, we're going to give the child to the mother. The father has no rights whatsoever. And very often the child will go to the father, and the mother will never see her child again. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, they say the family court is where, uh, they say criminal courts, uh, the worst people on their best behavior, and family courts, the best people on their worst behavior. I hadn't heard yeah. that, but I think that's apropos. Yeah. And uh, what are some other, the other interesting things, especially with the shorts and that? I think those are... One, some of them are so clever and inventive how people, these these short films that just cover the waterfronts. Like. Well, there's one that I happen to like. Um, it's You don't really know. It was originally a play. And you see a guy going into what looks like a job interview. And But it's a very... Did you see that one? Yeah. yeah. You both did. That was one of my favorites. Yeah, mine too. And oddly enough... The judges thought it was okay, but it didn't really excite them. I thought it was incredibly clever and wonderfully written and beautifully acted. Well, it turns out that the guy who you think is an employer interviewing a potential employee is actually someone looking for a friend, a longtime friend. And then they keep... Uh, you might have seen it more recently they than move I. Forward they move time. forward in time, and then they separate and they meet up with each other later. It's beautifully written, impeccably acted. And what I, is the name of this? The Forgotten Place. Thank you. The Forgotten Thank Place. You. Yeah. 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 It's I, funny that you guys both saw that. Well, well the interesting thing about this, um, all three of the movies that have been mentioned so far are part of a diversity category that we've just oh, launched this year. And John and I were both participants in the screening of those films. Okay. This is a category that Panavision actually asked to sponsor for us with a... Yeah, package. we can talk about that. They do a, a film package. Yeah, they do that typically for our student film and for uh, a cinematography board. For the cinema, the for the best student film, and then for the the film we judge most worthy in this new category of right. social vision and impact. Right. Diversity. So this this diversity category is actually a new effort by us and there were there were a handful a dozen or more films pulled out that we thought applied to this category that have been judged um and all three of the films that have been discussed here yeah. are part of that category so jasmine road is in that category yeah oh yeah. wow yeah i'm excited and uh, and it, you know it feeds the whole trend that's happening in the country now with the me too and all the other so, so you must have seen missing in brooks county yes, yeah that's did. another yeah. one i was going to mention 
You want to talk about it? You've seen it more recently than I have. Missing in Brooks Missing County, Missing Brooks in Brooks County, County, Texas. It's a very graphic, emotionally filled film on the migrant situation of people coming up from Mexico across the border and into Brooks County, Texas. Which is where? Brownsville or? No, it's... It's in a very remote yeah. part of the border between yeah. Mexico yeah. and it, it, it's, in a part, it's a part of the border where the climate, the topography, lends itself to extreme conditions. And they've been forced like Big into... Big Bend National Park area. It's, it's uh, got to be the Rio Grande that they're crossing. Yes, right? it, is. it is. It is. But the, stretch but the easier crossing places have been so sewn up by, yeah. you know, the politics and by the, the wall and this, that the migrants are being forced into these very inhospitable areas that they have to cross. And this follows... Families who are residents of the United States, who have relatives trying to get here. It, it goes back and forth across the border. It talks to some of the the, the, farmer, the farmers, the ranchers who live down there and their attitudes. It's a very interesting film. Some of the ranchers will actually leave water out for the migrants yeah. so that they won't die of thirst, which many of them do. Others are strongly opposed to doing that because they think it just encourages more migration. Yeah, I know. I lived in southeast Arizona and it happened when uh, enforcement in Tijuana and in Texas would get strengthened periodically as it does and they would force them through the the Chihuahua and the Sonora Desert yeah. up through those areas. Long, hard, hot hikes through the desert across the border and Autumn didn't make it. You'd see the water jugs and the clothes and stuff mm. they would shed as they would mm. go along. And yeah. It was, it was bad. And the same thing, there was like a vigilante force of mm-hmm. of local, uh, I don't want to call them knuckleheads. I believe they're well, sincere in their beliefs. You but be they would sincere and be a knucklehead. They, in fact, there's probably a, quite things. an overlap between the two. And, you know, present company excluded, of course. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, it's just it's uh, one of those uh, naughty issues that you the closer or more you study it, the further it gets away from you. It's like a mirage. Well, you know, this is one of the reasons why film festivals such as ours are so very important. Because in a very graphic way, because cinema you cannot ignore if you go to see it. It brings these problems out in such a way that it, it, it is, if I may use the same term, graphic. It's yeah. there, it hits you in the face, you can't ignore it, uh, and they're reflections of what all of these filmmakers see as so very important in the world today. So, yeah, and you have to admire these people that, that make these movies because there's not like big budgets for these documentary mm-hmm. features like that. These are labors of love. These are passion projects. These are people that are just, you know, making this happen with, with scant resources. Yeah, that's true of many of them. Occasionally we do get one that you can tell just by the way it looks, had a lot of money behind it. Yeah. It might be financed by PBS or something like that. Yeah, it's interesting how people, like, when they get the big money, it changes their whole approach to filmmaking. It's happened to many, many people that have done great independent films, and then they get a big studio budget. Well, if there are strings attached, yeah, then then they're tempted between staying true to their vision and going for the money. 
Well, I'm thinking of Darren Aronofsky, who's one of my favorite filmmakers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Although some of his big budget features made that one about Noah. I can't remember the name of it now. Maybe it was Noah. With, I, I think that. Russell Crowe playing Noah. And it was a biblical epic. And it wasn't until, you know, some days later that I realized, oh, it sorts into these allegories. Or the one he made, Mother, with Jennifer Lawrence. So such a strange movie. And Ed Harris comes in and just blows everyone else out of the water. And it's one of those films where you're just like, oh, my goodness, what is this? And it takes you, it just kicks around in your brain a while. And you go, oh, wait a minute, it's an allegory for Mother Earth and how we're stripping it, stripping mm-hmm. it bare. And it's just really great. There was a great interview with him on Elvis Mitchell, The Treatment. Yes. And he was talking about, what was the one he made with Natalie Portman? Um, the ballet movie Black Swan. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this, this is one of my favorite movies. It's like this perfect expression of art, like what we do for art, what we're willing to give up for art, the sacrifices and, uh, you know, the darkness, the shadow that goes along with that. He didn't talk about any of that at all. He talked about the money. He talked about, oh, I made The Wrestler, and I can't do his accent. He's got this great blue-collar Brooklyn accent. And he was, like, talking about, you know, The Wrestler cost $2 million. I made $61 million, and even more if they were honest with the books. And, you know, and then I go for $6 million in this movie, and I got Natalie Portman to go give up a year to train for ballet, and she's already this brilliant film. And I get, you know, halfway through the shoot, and... I'm running out of money, and Fox Searchlight just backed away from their promise. And I told these people, and I got, you know, I got three days to come up with payroll or else the crew's going to walk. And, you know, it was just like he ended up going to this poker group in Texas. These guys, somehow or another, he heard about these guys to get the last $2 million. It only cost $6 million to make that movie, which is astonishing. Mm. And then he got the last $2 million. But if you look at the producer credits on... It's a whole on, bunch uh, of black. It just goes on and on and on. And it was like, yeah, you know, you get my mistress in one scene, you get my wife in another, and make sure you know they schedule them on different days. And <laughs> and you know, my dog, like my, you know, why should I want my, you know, my wife will love it if you get the dog's name in the credit somewhere. And it's just crazy what they made him do. And this guy is a, a brilliant filmmaker, one of our best, and he had to grovel and beg to get that last $2 million. Well, it reminds me of Orson Welles, who after after he made Citizen Kane, which most critics still think is the best or one of the best films ever made. Absolutely. And then he did The Magnificent Ambersons, which they didn't like, and they recut. I'm sure you know the story there. And after that, he couldn't get arrested. He was also known to be very temperamental. So he spent the rest of his life scuffling, just like you're describing, going to friends, borrowing a little bit of money here and a little bit of money there to throw together to make a film. And he still still made another 20 or 30 films after that. But all instead of focusing on the content... He was always focusing on how to put the project together. The financing, mm-hmm. yeah. And what was that last movie that he made with Touch uh, of Evil? That was oh, oh no, no, that was a great movie. Okay, no, oh, but, I know uh, what you're the one about. with uh, John Houston and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other side of the wind. Yeah, yes, that's yeah. it. Yeah, 
which it's I wasn't terrible. sure. I, I try to watch it. it. There's a mass song. Well, it didn't get made. That's why. Well, didn't. somebody kind of restored most of what he'd shot and kind of tried yeah. to finish it off. Just within the last couple of years, I was on Netflix or Amazon or something. Yeah, I, it was unwatchable. I mean, I just couldn't. I mean, it was terrible in pretty much every way. Well, it was, you know, twenty years or something. He tried to make that. Yeah, movie. I had Malcolm McDowell on the podcast. He talked about making. It's fifty years since A Clockwork Orange. Yeah, and he was like talking about. You know, Stanley had the same problems getting money. He was, had to scuffle around. But yeah. he spent 20-some years trying to make this Napoleon film. But just as he was about to get the green light on it, uh, that Rod Steiger movie Waterloo came out, and it tanked. So that was wow. it. Yeah. You know, but I read the script. They call it, you know, the greatest movie never made. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a little long. It's like three hours or 160 or 170 pages or something but it's so fun I wish they would have made that movie it would have been great you know for Stanley Kubrick who's got a bit of a Napoleon complex himself to tackle this guy but he spent 20 years chronicling every day of Napoleon's life really had all the uniforms the greatest collection of Napoleonic uh, you know uh, paraphernalia and everything that he had, and so a lot of these great movies that are out there, we just never get to see them. Did you ever see Kubrick's first movie, which he tried to suppress? As of glory. No, 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 that was later. Fear and Desire? No. It's terrible, and he knew it was terrible, and after he became famous, he tried to buy up every copy, but actually, I found a copy, and I, I think uh -oh. it was on YouTube. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> It's about, I bet he wasn't still alive. You could probably blackmail him. I don't think he was alive. <laughs> Get a few hundred dollars. I think he probably, at the time that I saw it, he was not alive. No, his first movie, his first real movie, was The Killing, uh, which I was I looked for for With, many uh, years. Kirk, was that Kirk Douglas' no. collaboration? Or? Well, no, that came a little bit later. That was the next. That was um, Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory. And, and that's why Kirk Douglas hired him to finish making Spartacus after they fired the original director. Kurt said, yeah, well, I know somebody that's really good, this guy that directed me, and I'm not doing a Kurt Douglas accent. I, <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. No, please. I don't even know what that would sound yeah. like, to be honest with you. Oh, yeah, you've seen his movies. Anyway, oh, so oh. They, he, they said, I know this guy, Stanley Kubrick, who directed me in this great little movie called Paths of Glory. They said, okay, fine. And that's really what got Kubrick on the road to making big-budget movies. Yeah, but even he had to beg. I guess they all do, you know, at some point. Well, I wonder, though, the way the landscape has changed, both the technology has flattened out the, you know, the gatekeepers. Absolutely. But also the massive amount of money from Amazon and Netflix and the streaming services that they pumped into the system, yeah. the vast amount of content people have to produce now. But not much of it's going into feature movies. It's going into these... Limited series, mostly, mm -hmm. it seems to be. There's just so much great stuff out there, I can't even keep up with yeah. it. But I just wonder how that's changed in just over the 22 years of the festival. Well, the barriers to entry have, have been greatly lowered, because now any... I think I like to say that the film industry today is such that anybody with an idea and a small amount of money 
can go out and make a movie. That's the good news. The bad news is that anybody with an idea in this film can go out there and make a movie. Yeah. And so we used to see a lot of those in the early days of the festival. Now we see almost none of those. You mean those kind of the really terrible ones where you figure why did this why guy did ever see it? a movie before he tried to make one? It doesn't look like he did. Yeah. My chair is squeaking here. Sorry. So yeah, um, yeah, I'm surprised at the high quality of movies made by so many different people out there. Do you feel like the quality has improved dramatically oh, yeah, over the 22 I think years? it has, yeah. yeah. All I the mean, way through? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not consistent. It's like the stock market. It, you know, it goes up and down, yeah. but it generally goes up over the long run. Yeah, but for $900, you get yourself a smartphone yeah. with really high-quality camera equipment built in. Yeah, they even have, like, gimbals and stuff or gimbals in these new iPhones. It's right, crazy. and now they have one that has a built-in Zooms. And then for three or $400, you pick up the software... We just made a movie like that, the two of us, with Anna Kotula, you know Anna Kotula. Of course. Yeah, she played the, did you see her when she did the Bell of Amherst? I didn't, I meant to, I heard well, really Well, would you things. like me to send you the link? We filmed yeah, it. Yeah, you guys did a, now you just filmed the stage version? No, or we set it up, a, we filmed it like a movie over yeah. a period of several days, stopping and starting. Is no, it in the no festival? Audience. Oh no. No, no you didn't, couldn't even... Lie on no, that, that is, well, it's not a vanity project. I know. No, the problem is that we don't have the rights to do anything with it, really. I mean, we had the oh, rights really? to film Just it. Well, we did family. have the rights to film it to stream for a period of whatever we had 10 yeah, days we, or something. We yeah. paid for a yeah. specified yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, that's why right. we paid them for the rights to stream it. And, then, and we did it live for one weekend at the Arts Center. So, but I still have the video. I just can't do anything commercially with it. Yeah. But I can well, show like it to, to you. Yeah, yeah. except show it to you. And the uh, Bell of Amherst is a play that was done what, back in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And Shirley... Um, Shirley Jones was the No, first. not Shirley Jones, but I forgot her name. Shirley Valentine? <laughs> no, that's another play that I did. It'll come to me, but... She, no, it's not Shirley, it's Julie. Julie Harris. It was oh, sort of Julie written Harris. for her. Okay. Is what I Who was Shirley Valentine? Oh. Wasn't Julie Harris played? No, Shirley no, that was Julie Walters. Oh, my God. I, so I know, there's Julies. a lot of names. Yeah, these names are And I can't remember most the of them. The Jamboree. I remember that. Yeah. Did you see our production of, uh, this has nothing to do with the festival, but when we did, he was involved in that heavily. When we did Shirley Valentine, a year no, and a half. I so. missed that, but I remember... Mm. You did, it's done, been done twice, right? Haven't you done that? That twice? one we only did one. Well, actually, it was done at the Arts Center 20 years ago by somebody else. Okay. I was supposed to do it. It's a long story, which I won't go into. Yeah. Frank Malley, if you remember him, he directed Sure, that Jesse Lovejoy. Jesse Lovejoy, <laughs> now known as... Now his real name is Frank Malley. Yeah. He pretended it was Jesse. It's a better name for an actor. He did it 20 years ago, and then we did it last year, whenever it was. Two, two years, years ago. ago. Three years? Two years. Oh, two years. 2019 didn't exist. Yeah, that's yeah. right. We lost the year there. So, yeah, Ten we're trying to think year. of taking those elsewhere, because Anna is so good in those, as he'll tell you. He was yeah, blown away, right? Yeah. So, uh, what were some other questions I had? Well, just about some of the fun memories from festivals past and oh, what, uh, what comes to, to mind. Like any. Well, I'll give you one personal memory. When I was a kid growing up, I happened to see you mentioned Shirley Jones a minute ago. Well, I have a Shirley Jones story. I had a crush on her. She, you know, she did. Well, of course we did. I mean, yeah. unless, you know, yeah. unless you, were, with unless you weren't straight, you would definitely have. Well, even then, I think she's got quite a... <laughs> that's true. She, yeah, but that's a little different. That's platonic. Yeah. But anyway, I definitely had a crush on her, and I was able to live out 
one of my lifelong dreams to have my picture taken with my arm around her yeah. at the art center when we showed um, as our opening night film. Uh, what did they show? It wasn't Oklahoma. It was another movie that she... Oh, Alma Gantry? No. Oh, no, great. no, no. I, I know what it was. It was one of my favorite musicals. Uh, the one where she plays a librarian. Oh, yeah, um, uh, Marion, Marion the Librarian. Marion the Librarian. The, uh, the, uh, trombone. Sound, uh, the Music Man. Music, the music Man, man yeah. 76 trombones. That's right. Of course. And when we did it, we had 76, well, I don't know if it was 76, but we had the high school band marching from the Arts Center down yeah. to the bowl. Were you there? Is that I was it? there. That yeah, was great fun. And so I got my picture taken with her. So that was good. That was a very minor thing, but yeah. uh, that's a fond memory, I guess. Well, it was fun for me to get up there with Ed Asner. And John and Peggy Russell hosted him, and they had a blast. They just, he was just such a yeah, raconteur. Yeah. Yeah. He can't yeah. keep his hands off the ladies, I understand. Or couldn't. <laughs> well, he figured he'd get to a certain age. They're yeah. going to give you a pass when you make a pass. That's what I used to think. That's what I used to think. I used to look forward to that. <laughs> it's not true anymore. Oh, no. No, Linda didn't let him get away with it. <laughs> you see that? Doesn't matter how old you are anymore. We'll be yeah, canceled. Yeah, he was a dirty dog. Yeah. Well, at the, well, at the festival, uh, my wife Linda had met him the, when he first came in the night before, and then at the festival brunch, uh, she came. We were all at the same table, and when she walked by, he pulled her down and he gave her a little kiss. Yeah. And and he looks at her. and He says, "What? No tongue?" <laughs> so she looks at him and says. Are you a member of the Harvey Weinstein fan club? <laughs> so, um, well, that's really what it takes for more women to just not be afraid. I mean, yeah. well, that climate has changed. Yeah, Thank God, it was just really bad. I just, <laughs> just the secretive, shadowy, furtive nature of the whole mm. Harvey Weinstein era, and how many people who thought they had to go along to get along. Yeah, yeah. And they're carrying that around with them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, hashtag me too. Well, how does that make them feel that, you know, there's a moment where, you know, it's too late for them. Yeah, because, exactly. Well, one piece of good news about that whole phenomenon, which I have not heard anybody report, and I mentioned this to Liz right after October of 2017 when the Me Too movement started. I said, there's a very big silver lining here and I told her what it was and I said and I haven't heard anybody mention it yet and she said oh somebody will well that was three years ago what is it four years ago now yeah. nobody has mentioned it so I'm going to mention it alright exclusive for the Ohio podcast what do we got and that is unknown caller uh, uh, you didn't turn off your phone I did okay. I don't know why it's... So, well it's a fanfare for my announcement here. there we go uh, Drum what roll, people please. are not acknowledging is that this whole tendency for powerful men to sexually exploit women whom they have power over and who, who can control their careers is over. It ended in October of 2017. No powerful man is ever going to do that again because yeah. he knows what's going to happen to him. So the only stories that you're going to hear about now are from before then. And yeah, those are the true. ones you're hearing. You have not heard about anything happening of that nature since 2017, October. Okay. Well, I'm going to keep that in the back of my Please mind. Do. If I have an find an exception, I will bring Please it up. Please let me know. But I do worry that the cultural spotlight moves on to something else and then the 
darkness creeps back in. Oh, in this particular case, I tend to doubt that, though. Yes, yeah. at least on uh, you know the Hollywood level. Yeah, well, even in industry. I mean, this was going on in industry on a smaller scale. But even there, what corporation executive wants to have his whole career ruined yeah. by having a woman file a complaint against it? It's all over. Can't well, there's a lot of progress we've made. I think about gay marriage, how quickly that happened. Yes, thanks like to Joe Biden. Uncle Joe, yep. yeah, 2012, Obama was officially still on board the <laughs> civil union. <laughs> yeah. And then now it's like it seems quaint and antiquated. Mm -hmm. But I do worry that, especially with the level of corporate wokeness, it's like, oh, you have your fabulous gay weddings and we support all of that. You know, minimum wage, $15, eh, don't think so. Here, you go celebrate gay weddings, but we'll take care of the economic stuff. You, oh, go, that's, you, go, yeah. you go back, you, you you know, we'll call you, you know, critical workers or what was the other term that they were using for, you know, the frontline, you know, grocery store clerks and mailmen and everything during COVID that had to show up every day. Essential workers. Essential, Essential workers. You, oh, we'll honor you, but, yeah. but up not, to, with not up yeah. to the point where yeah. it's going to cost us. Right. Well, that's going to change, too, though, I think. I, I hope you're right. We'll see. Yeah. So what I'm worried about, yeah, we're talking about. One of the ahead, inspirational sorry. parts of the festival that I'm excited about is Chloe's story, which oh, yeah. relates to Darren and, and, and the way he had to uh, scramble for money. She's managed to do her independent work and as a woman filmmaker, a Jap I mean, a Chinese Asian woman filmmaker, get through Nomadland making her own movie without seeming to be beholden to too many studio or mm -hmm. oversight yeah. issues and then get handed the Eternals, a Marvel... A know, blank check. A blank check yeah. to write and direct as a woman. Did she write it too? She wrote she it. She's one of several writers, really but she's, she's a prime writer on and director of a Marvel franchise. Yeah, I don't even can't imagine the budget on that. Probably two, I, north I, of 200. 200 million yeah, or more. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a remarkable story in this day and yeah. age. Well, I think with Nomadland, which was great, it was like one of those kind of quiet hybrid documentary hyper-realism movies. I think once you got Frances McDormand signed ah, on, yes. she was home <laughs> free. That must have been like a big moment for her when she took that phone call. Because Frances yeah. McDormand is so amazing. Everything she does is just yeah. and she's so perfectly cast for that role. But then exactly. I think, well, you could cast her in just about any role and she would figure it out. But That's yeah, I remember true. seeing that white van around town. I don't know what happened to it. I wanted to, if I ever get a chance, I'm supposed to have an interview with her, but they keep postponing it. Mm. Is what happened to that white van? Like, <laughs> where is that white van? It used to what's be. The, what's the white van? It's the one she drove around in. Oh, Francis. oh, a nomad. Okay, I see. <laughs> yeah. You saw it in town here, you said? Oh, yeah. Does she live here? Yes. Yeah. Frances McDormand lives here? I didn't no. know. Oh, hey. Chloe. Chloe's oh, out. Chloe. Oh, it was her van. Yeah, okay, well, it was, a, it was a supporting character in the film. Yeah, yeah it was a production yeah. van, but she landed. Oh, okay. She oh, okay, I see. parked it at her house yeah. for a while. But it's like uh, the New Yorker magazine had a little piece about her partner, Joshua James Richards, I think his mm -hmm. name is. And he uh, was talking about how they had the white van out in front of their house in Ojai, California. And my ears always perk up when I see Ojai, California, especially in the New Yorker magazine. Yeah. yeah. And he was talking about the 
neighbor was like, hey, you know, that van, you guys, you need any help with that? You know, I'm pretty handy. I got some tools. And then it would like happen like a couple more times, you know, hey, you need any help with that van? And he finally figured out the guy was tired of the eyesore and wanted to <laughs> either fix it up or get it the hell out of there. <laughs> But that movie reminded me, Nomadland. Did you guys ever see Salt of the Earth? Sure. It had a feel to that, like it was a mix of real actors and just people. Yeah, I was stunned to see a guy because you know I have a I bought a teardrop trailer and I've been going on YouTube looking for films about how people are traveling in their trailers. And there's this one guy, he's really interesting. He's got a big long white beard and he he talks about he interviews people about their trailers and their travels and he goes to factories where they make trailers. Oh, and really? all of a sudden I'm looking at Nomadland and I said, wait a minute, Liz, I recognize that guy. And then I think, well, how do I know this guy? And then I realized he was just a YouTube guy that knows all the people who live the nomadic life. And she said, well, you want to be in my movie? And he said, yeah, sure, I'm, why not? And he had a very big part. He was good, too. Oh, yeah. He's not uh, an actor, that I, guy. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I know who you're talking yeah. about. He's yeah. like, uh, um, it's called yeah. van life or something. Yeah, hashtag like van life. And yeah, then yeah. There's the other one, something tin can kitchen or. Tin oh, there's a whole can. bunch of them. Yeah. But he's tin very well known. Campers or something. Yeah. So I, of, I guess she somehow met him through some of the people that she was interviewing. Yeah, I'm not and surprised. You sort of brought us back to the festival again because a new element to our festival this year is an award for an outstanding YouTube. Videographer. Oh my goodness! Yeah, of course. That seems like such a natural. I'm surprised, and no one's ever done that. This before. is, as far as we know, the first time anyone has any festival has done this. And uh, so, videographer, I mean, and the ones who have the highest, uh, the best, most pretty to look at. Most, well, uh, it, it, it's I have a John Brannigan, who's one of our board members. He's a stunt man, stunt coordinator, avid motorcycle rider former cowboy. Uh, yeah. He's the one who sort of pushed us into this, uh, which we uh, really enjoy. And, and some of the criteria that, that he set out was uh, production values, the look, looking at the adverse conditions in which one has to be able to use these production values, yeah. traveling all over. And for our first year doing this, uh, we're fo focusing on motorcycles. And oh, because of, that's his passion? That's his passion, but it's and also appropriate yeah. because this is Ojai. Yeah. And every every weekend, what do we hear? Roaring, blown right. pipes. They come through Ojai, oh, going yes. up through the Maricopa. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I've lived here. That's been the case. Yeah, so. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. I imagine that would... Now, how do you screen for that? Is just like what, what you... What you what comes up he in your made feet? Choices. Or, we turned yeah. it over to him. Yeah, he yeah. went online. He, he actually, he said COVID drove him to spend a lot more time on YouTube this yeah. year. So uh, in between his work, and he did work during COVID as a stuntman, but he spent a lot of time watching YouTube, and a lot of it was motorcycle yeah. travel things all over the world. And uh, I can and imagine I think that's quite a world. Like it is, people. and in his other criteria, he mentioned was films, YouTube uh, videos that made a difference that made. Of the feeling that they were trying to tell a story that had some impact on their yeah. on Meaning, their surrounding meaningful impact right enriching the human spirit through film so and YouTube like videos that. you're gonna have to expand your mission statement well YouTube videos can enrich the human of experience. course yeah 
Yeah, I waste a lot of time on fishing videos, unfortunately. And this guy named Sean James, who's a off, off-grid homesteader, my self-reliance guy. Yeah. You go down these rabbit holes, and it's hard to get back out. Now, TikTok videos are such a engrossing waste of time. I've never seen one. <laughs> Not knowing. I don't know. Well, you're, there's a lot to be said for the form. Yeah. I think it can be whatever you make of it. It's like a container that you can pour your heart yeah. into. Yeah. And, and also a lot of crap. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of, you know, I wanted to close out by just having some talk about what you, what are your guys' favorite movies? Sven, what's your favorite film? I'm a, a longtime admirer of American Westerns. John Ford, John Wayne. Oh, yeah. As well as Alfred Hitchcock, The Searchers. and uh, Oh, The Searchers. And uh, Vertigo. Uh, from Hitchcock and Rio Grande, Rio Lobo, Howard Hawks movies. Those yeah, because of the settings, are just so amazing. Monument and, Valley and their epic stories—they they just yeah. apply to all all humans. It's interesting how westerns have been con- continually reinvented, and like Germany, they love western stories over there. Yeah. All around the world, it's like such a such an archetypical form I don't know exactly what that is I guess it's like the just the frontier what's around the next band and how people act when they're in extre- an extremity and including spaghetti westerns where they oh yeah have fun or with the genre. remember those Bud Hill and Terrence uh, can't remember his last name movies they're Sergio Leone directed right. mm-hmm. those oh, he but they were, they were they were funny movies they're, <laughs> yeah. they're clever yeah they have fun with it so, yeah. yeah Terrence Hill and Bud yeah. Oh, is it Bud Hill and Terrence? I don't remember, but those movies are great fun. My favorite scene in one of those was he was fishing with a bat with a stick, with a club, and he'd like drop a grasshopper on the water, and then he'd wait until the fish came up. Bam! Because he was a, you know, a gunslinger. He was just so quick that he could whack a fish when it came up for a, the cricket. Yeah. Yeah, I was just reading an article this morning about John Ford and uh, and a video maker sends out a newsletter and there was a long article about you. And he was really I haven't really seen that many of his movies, but he was certainly revered in Hollywood by all of the top directors who said they oh, learned from him. And that. actors, yeah. yeah. And, and actors. He, he was very prolific. He turned yeah. out three or four He made a movie a every year for seven, were, 60 years. That were epic stories mm-hmm. that have yeah. lasted very well. Yeah. Good. So my favorite movies, well, I've changed my opinions somewhat over the years. The first, when I was a teenager, I saw what at the time was considered by many critics to be the best movie ever made. Then I got into a big argument with a friend who said, no, it's Citizen Kane. But the movie that I had was on the top of the list when I first started watching movies was The Bicycle Thief, which I really Oh, loved. yeah, Vittoria Sica. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was so Neo-realism. grim, though. Yeah, it was grim. Yeah, well, you know, I guess if you look at the movies, the festival shows there, some of, the, some of those are grim, but, you know, we show the movies, the best ones of the ones that yeah. we have. Well, it's one of those movies that are important. But it's also the way that he made it and the way that he was yeah. able to... Using another, amateurs. Yeah, another one that used amateurs, yeah. real people. But not all my tastes go to the grim. I also, Annie Hall, when I saw that, I just, I couldn't believe how good that... I mean, I... Well, Christopher Walken. 
He well, stole that movie. Yeah, not exactly. But that was a great scene. Where he yeah. says, well, I'm due back on planet Earth now. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah, I know that. I've seen the movie 15 or 20 times at least. But when I saw that movie for the first time, it was so funny that I really couldn't laugh. I mean, I was so stunned yeah. by how funny it was that it stopped me from actually laughing. I know that feeling. It's yeah. a rare feeling. Yeah, Something it is. is so that amazing. It's the first time I'd ever had it. Do you think he'll ever be rehabilitated? Yeah, well, you oh, you want to get into that? How many, how many more hours do you have? I'll just say, as many as we want. Well, to I can tell you this. I'll make one statement about it for everyone who's listening here. If you research that whole case, it was very difficult until just recently, Wikipedia, somebody collected all the information about that case for a long Wikipedia article. It will take about an hour to read it. Every aspect of that case is delineated in that article. I defy any thinking person to read that whole article and come away with the belief that he did what he was accused of. And I'll just leave it at that. Okay, well, it's gonna, that would be a tough one. I see, you know, Ronan Farrow's <laughs> diligence in that case, and it's hard for me to discount that. Like, I discount it. I don't like that kid. I never did. But never you know, liked him. <laughs> anyway, that's he's definitely the point. Woody Allen's kid, though. I think I call oh, him. Oh, God. Record record record. Yeah. You think he's Woody Allen's kid and not Frank Sinatra's? Absolutely. I really? Think he's Woody Allen's kid, 100%. Why do you say that? His uh, intelligence, his, his uh, just. His sophistication is, I think he's Woody but, Allen's kid. But if you hold up, but it behooves his career to keep people guessing. Well, I mean, okay. I mean, even his mother isn't sure, but you're sure. That's odd. But uh, if you hold up a picture of Frank Sinatra and Ronan Farrow and Woody okay. Allen, and you ask anybody off the street, you know, which of these people is that guy's father? I think, yeah. Uh, well, you can 80%. also you can take take you or me and scrub us down and shave us up and clean us up and get good lighting and yeah. just, and we can get make some cases. Well, you'll never that. make Woody Allen. That's like, like you're Frank in Sinatra. the industry. You guys are in the industry. You know the trickery. A lot of CGI might do it, but not yeah, just clean You know up. the trickery. Anyway, so other movies, I mean, um, well, I mean, I mean, I guess Citizen Kane I would have to put up there just because of the brilliance of the originality, although he relied very heavy on Greg Tolan. They know was the, the cinematographer. cinematographer who the story that I heard, and I heard this from Charlie Clark, from whom I learned cinematography at UCLA, and he knew Greg Tolan, and he said, everybody in the world thinks that Orson Welles is a genius because of all the deep focus and yeah. contrasty light. Greg Toland had been wanting to do that for years, and nobody would let him because it was too unusual. And Orson Welles, who didn't know anything, came and along. And he was 24 years old. And yeah, and he, know yeah he was 25, I think, but that's close. Close enough. Anyway, so apparently the story that I heard from the inside is that it was a collaboration between Greg Toland and Orson Welles with Greg Toland telling Orson all these things that he'd always wanted to do, like the deep focus, using split field diopters and things like that. So, but um, other movies that I've liked, believe it or not, I, a movie... Oh, wait, like, before, yeah. did you see Mank? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't which, like it. Which, you didn't like it? I thought it was fun to, to watch, but they used a lot of the same camera yeah. trickery. I think that the point is they were yeah. trying to... Mimic the like style. an homage. Yeah, an homage, right. Um, so um, I also like some lighthearted movies uh, made by someone who used to live here in Ojai. Harold Ramis, you know which movie? Oh, of I'm course, talking? Ghostbusters. Yeah. No, well, not, not that. That was kind of silly. Animal House. No, that was also silly. Keep coming. 
Oh, um, uh, the next one would be uh, Stripes. No. Yeah. I kind of like that one I saw, but it's not in the category with the one I'm talking about. You okay, so it's after Stripes and yeah. before Ghostbusters? After Ghostbusters. Oh, goodness gracious. I'm not going to... Okay, Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day was amazing. <laughs> Wasn't that yeah. incredible? I, I could watch it right now if you turned it on. Yeah. I mean, uh, Bill Murray was fantastic. Uh, I forget her name. The, no, oh, gosh, the yeah. Andy McDowell. Andy McDowell, yeah. Who's acting with her daughter, Margaret Qualley. Did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, I like the, that. Uh, the flower child Manson family member mm -hmm. Margaret Qualley played. It was great. She's in this, this limited series now called Made, which starts out like a documentary about the system when you have oh. to get child care and you're poor and getting yeah. jobs and you got to... To get vouchers for housing, you have to show a pay stub and how hard it is to get that and the way the money goes out. And that was really, really a grim slog to watch that yeah. poor, what the poor have to deal with and how it's expensive to be poor. You know? One more movie that I thought of, and in fact, I wrote about it in your publication. Was that the one? Okay, this was a, like a How the movie changed movie. my life. Yeah, because the guys kissed at the end. That's right. You remember that. I remember that part. Incredible memory. Well, it's two truck drivers. Yes. Explosives. Exactly. I don't remember the movie. Check it out. When I saw that, I was probably 15 or 16. I'd already given up on American movies because I was old enough to realize this is all nonsense. This is not like real people. I wonder if you could make a movie in which the characters behave like real human beings. That would be something interesting. Then I saw The Wages of Fear, and I said, yes, it is possible. Somebody did it. Fear. Yeah. And who was that film? Henri Clouseau was the director. And this was like... 1955. Olivia. Okay. Mm. Um, really cool. So, and then it was remade with Ray, with Roy Scheider. It was, wasn't bad, but it was yeah. called uh, Sorcerer. But the original version called The Wages of Fear was... Okay, I'll post that yeah, up in the notes. Yeah, check it out. And That's the know. one I wrote about in that little I piece. remember. Mm -hmm. So, well, I'm, I'm, I come from a whole different category because I've never been a film person. <laughs> In terms well, of going to films. But there are a couple of films, or well, one film in particular that again goes way back, which is On the Beach. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it got me. Burt Lancaster. It got me thinking. It got yeah. me thinking. And that, that kind of film I enjoy, which is, again, one of the reasons why I'm involved with independent films, because you go away thinking about them. Yeah, really. Was that an independent movie? Because it seemed to be pretty well produced. I don't think so. No, it has, some, it it has like, some big names in it. It was an Australian yeah. movie. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. it was shot in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I also enjoy movies where you can turn your brain off. Of Such course. as Romancing the Stone, for example. Yeah, you know? or they're caper just, movies. Yeah, they're just fun. Yeah. They're just fun movies. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I have a, a, something of a Catholic taste. With a small scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think about what's my... You know, I, I love that you talked about just kind of fun movies to watch. But actually that have, like, a lot of insight is uh, my favorite year. <laughs> Remember that movie yeah, with yeah. Uh, Peter O'Toole? Yes. <laughs> I am not an actor. I am a movie star. <laughs> yeah. I am blind. I cannot see. He was great. He was basically playing some version of himself yeah. and just having a rip-roaring good time. But yeah. Joe Mantegna, not Joe Mantegna, who is the Sid Caesar character in that yeah. show that had the sh 
But that was the early days of of yeah. the television industry. It was just like it was just such a wide open forum, and everybody didn't. They were just flying by the seat of their pants, and they were all having a great time. And to be in those writers' rooms, and oh, yeah. and then uh, you know Neil Simon, Danny Simon were in there. Woody Allen was Woody there. Allen was yeah. in there. Sid Caesar. Well, he was writers' rooms. He hired <laughs> so many of them. Yeah. Mel Brooks was writing in there. Yeah. Oh, Mel oh, Brooks, man. that's right. Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner. Yeah, oh, it was like really what a that was a golden age. Because <laughs> no, none of the bosses, none of the people who were writing the checks, really understood what where their money was going. These guys had like as much freedom as as you know they do now. It's like a good parallel to now when there's. Street, so much content being put out there. They, they look at the Nielsen's. If the Nielsen's are good, give that guy more money. Yeah. He's making money for the network. Well, now it's a whole different set of parameters for what's success. And, you know, it's like there, there's time to give things a, you know, a breathing room and prestige type dramas like The Sopranos. Nobody knew what to do with that. Or Seinfeld had really crappy ratings its first few years. Mm -hmm. and Nobody knew what to do with Larry David, for God's sake. He was just like Sue Generis. Yeah. And another one of my favorite movies is Ghost Dog. Do you remember? Oh, uh, I don't know that. I don't know that at all. Um, uh, Jim Jarmusch. I remember Jim Jarmusch movies. Strangers in Paradise. Yeah, with remember that, uh, that was his first Roberto Benigni. No, that was a different movie. No, that was Night on Earth. Night on Earth, yeah. yeah. But Ghost Dog, that's Forrest Whitaker. It is, I think, peak Forrest Whitaker. But he's so quiet, he hardly says anything throughout the movie. But he's just like, you know, the code of Bushido. He's got this very strict moral code. And then he's dealing with a bunch of scuzzy gangster types that have none. So it just sets up all these conflicts between him and them and him hewing to this very strict moral code. And it's just really wonderful. It just Jim Darmus is somebody that makes movies on the fly. And, yeah. And then what was the one? I talk about this a lot on the podcast because I think everyone should see it. Pig, Nicolas Cage movie that just came out like oh. a few months ago. Oh. First time director, never heard of him before. Yeah. But it's about a... His truffle pig, you know, he's a recluse. Oh, yes, I saw that. I, I, I did see You saw that? that? Yeah. Yeah, they steal his pig. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then it's I like... It's a very uh, bizarre okay. movie, yeah. Well, but my God, Nick Cage is just at his top four. Yeah, and I didn't recognize that that, that, that was even Nicolas Cage. Yeah, it, doesn't look first, like it took a while. Yeah. But just that, you know, extended meditation on grief and loss. Mm -hmm. and Some of those scenes in that movie just like... You talk about not even being able to put an emotion on it because you're so stunned mm -hmm. by what you're seeing. That movie really got to me. Of all the movies I've seen recently, that's one that really sticks out. Mm. Yeah. So what else is going on, you guys? Like, I know we're going to wrap up here in a minute, but it's been great fun talking to you. And yeah, this way, what do you, what's your final message for for? for a festival? Well, festival come to goes. the festival, see a lot of really great films, mingle with other like-minded people who appreciate good movies and have a great time. Yeah, it's fun for Ojai getting back to in-person events. Yeah. And like the music festival was a triumph. I felt like the audiences were thrilled and just to be there and it, they mix it up a little, you know, it was just, 
Mm-hmm. Ojai is known for its festivals, and and the Ojai Film Festival is in that rank, and we're really happy to have you. And Good. we're so glad the festivals got back in in person, yeah. and uh, we'll see you guys around the campus. Okay, thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for great. Just thinking out loud. We talked with this film festival trio about this incredible art form and how it all comes together from all over the world. 40 countries represented, truly an international festival. Since the first Shakespeare Reading Club back in 1898, this arts and celebration scene has formed a key part of our community's identity and purpose and playing host to so many people from all over the world benefits us as well as them. Fingers crossed we don't go back into restrictions and quarantine because there is a very real human cost to this isolation. We look forward to continuing on gathering together to share ideas and inspiration. Well, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. And until the next, we'll keep an ear out for you.